0: This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to two passages in God's inspired Word, First, in John chapter 20, John 20, verses 19 through 23, and then we turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. First, John 20, 19 through 23. The two passages that we read this morning are places in God's Word which Prove, explain the doctrine of church or Christian discipline. And those are not the only two. I rely on your memory of another important passage in Matthew 18. I refer to that in the sermon as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But John chapter 20. Verse 19. Then the same day, meaning the same day of the resurrection, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you And when he had so said he showed unto them his hands and his side then were the disciples glad when they saw the lord then said Jesus to them again peace be unto you as my father hath sent me even so send i you And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. We stop there in John, and now we turn to the Epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, the second epistle. Second Thessalonians, chapter three. There we read verses ten through eighteen. Beginning at, beginning at verse ten of Second Thessalonians three. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work, and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. But if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother." Now the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. On the basis of God's Word. We have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 31. Lord's Day 31. We focus in upon question and answer 85 this morning. Question and answer 85 about the key of discipline. First, we read question and answer 83 and then 85. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Answer the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. Then question answer 85, how is the kingdom of heaven shut and open by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church, and by God Himself from the kingdom of Christ, and when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and His church. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, your crucified and risen and ascended Savior has both commanded and equipped you unto the work of church discipline. He has first commanded church discipline. Question and answer 85 begins that way. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? It begins the same way as when it described preaching. Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is a command of Jesus Christ Himself that the church engage in Christian discipline. That's not just a catechism. It's what Scripture has shown us even on this morning in Second Thessalonians 3. There is the imperative. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, then the command, note that man, have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There's the imperative. And familiar to us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus personally there to the disciples says, Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, then the command, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And you know the rest. We review that this morning. Christian discipline is not optional, it's a must. It's a command of Jesus Christ due to the ignorance of the Word at times, or simply due to the intentional neglect of God's Word, many churches and many people today in churches pride themselves in not doing discipline, saying that they are not judgmental here. We're not condemning of others. And on that basis, do not obey Jesus Christ. But Jesus commands the church unto church discipline, to engage in what is a very unpopular work today. He commands us unto a difficult work, but He also equips the church unto that duty commands and equips. So what He does for all the good works that He calls us to do in obedience to the commandments and the law, He does it also with regard to church discipline. Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. As our Savior and Lord, He commands, but also strengthens us, equips us unto that which by nature we do not want to do. That beautiful truth we find in John chapter 20. John 20 records for us one of the appearances of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. He came to his disciples in that upper room when that door was locked, and with his glorified body he was able to enter in to them, to appear before his disciples as a group. You know that well-known history. By his appearance. He proved to them that He was living, that He had indeed conquered His death, but also death for His people and conquered their sin. And thus, that's the significance of the word peace, peace be unto you. He brought peace to His disciples and to us by His resurrection. And along with that blessing of peace, Jesus gave the command. Verse 21 to his disciples, as my father hath sent me, even so I send you, those apostles. And with that command to the apostles, he speaks to us, the church today, as I send you, you must go forth and you must preach just as I preached. And with that same word that you preach, you must do discipline. That's what he sends those apostles unto, a difficult work, preaching according to God's word, discipline according to God's word, which the world would not like. In fact, they would be persecuted and despised for it. And having given that command, we see he equips those disciples unto that, as he does us. He does so in one of the most unique events in Jesus' life. Notice in John 20, He breathes on them. With His glorified body, He causes those disciples to feel His breath upon their bodies. A a physical wind emitted from His lips. That was a symbol. He wanted them to remember that. It was symbolic of what Jesus was going to do 50 days after His resurrection. He was going to pour forth His Holy Spirit upon His disciples to equip them unto the work that He called them unto. Spirit means breath. The breath of God. The breath of Jesus Christ. And so today as you listen to God's Word, you ought to think of how Jesus not only speaks His Word and commands you unto church discipline... But how with that Word, as your merciful Savior, He breathes His Spirit to equip, to strengthen, to revive us unto that obedience. Verse 23 of John 20 shows us, proves to us that it is indeed church discipline that Jesus equips those disciples unto. Whosoever sins ye remit, and remit their means forgive. Speak remission regarding. They are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, meaning you hold those sins to them unforgiven, they are retained. Consider the truth of church discipline or church censure today as one of the keys of the kingdom. We saw that last time, the kingdom of heaven is pictured as a city, as a city with gates and walls. It's invisible to our physical eyes, but heaven is pictured as a city with gates and walls and God's people, members of his church, are on the way to that city in Christ's triumphal procession he is the king and the captain of the army has already entered there risen and ascended we are on our way to that city whose builder and maker is God that's invisible to our human eyes but what is invisible God Christ Jesus makes visible in his visible church he wields the keys of the kingdom the preaching and church discipline so that in the visible church, there is displayed to His people the opening of that kingdom to some and the shutting of that kingdom to others. So consider this doctrine with me as taught in Lord's Day 31 in question and question answer 85. Keys of the kingdom, church discipline. First, the discipline itself. Second, its Christian character. And then finally, a command of Christ. Christ Jesus has laid out very clearly in His Word what He wants this church to do and also the manner in which He calls that church unto discipline. And I first of all this morning review. I know it's a review, but I review for you what this discipline consists of. Generally speaking, first let's answer the question, a basic question of who who is supposed to do this discipline, or who is the subject of the verb discipline? And the answer you must know, a simple answer is the church. it's called church discipline. Don't miss that simple point, children and people of God. the responsibility of discipline, the subject of discipline is Yours as a church, and the church is not the elders only. That's Roman Catholic rubbish. The church is not just the clergy, while the people are not really the church, just the laity. The church includes the elders, yes, as leaders, but also the members. Who does church discipline? The church. And Jesus shows that very clearly in Matthew 18, verse 15. I said I was going to refer back to this familiar passage, and I do now. In Matthew 18, Jesus shows very clearly that discipline is by the members of the church. All the members of the church. For discipline, He shows in Matthew 18, verse 15, does not begin even with the elders of the church normally. But discipline begins with the brothers, the sisters. It already takes place among the members before it comes to a consistory of elders. If thy brother, Matthew 18, verse 15, trespass against thee, Jesus says not to the elders, but to an individual member, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. That loving rebuke between a brother and a brother in private, that first step in Matthew 18, as we call it, is already discipline. We can call it unofficial discipline, while the elders engage in formal or official discipline, and yet it's already the beginning of church discipline. And then if that brother refuses to repent and will not hear thee," Jesus says in Matthew 18:16, "You know the second. then you take one or two with you that they may be be witnesses of that impenitence. And only after that, then if the brother still refuses to repent, verse 17 of Matthew 18 says, tell it unto the church, meaning, as the form for the installation of elders says, can't mean to everyone in public in the church right away, but to the leaders of the church who will officially lead the church as a whole in official or formal discipline. And even when the elders take up the work that doesn't leave the members of the church passive, the elders are to lead that church to be involved in official church discipline as well. Who does discipline? Jesus says the whole church As individuals, you know, and I know, we repent of our own sin first. So when you hear this, don't immediately imagine that we go and seek as policemen to find other people's sins. But indeed, we first remove the log out of our own eyes. Then, when we can see clearly, having repented daily of our own sins, then we confront a brother or sister when we see them in sin. This mutual discipline should be happening. Really, it should be happening day by day. Think of parents and children that's the beginning of church discipline when parents have to chastise and rebuke their children members of the church have mutual censure there even sometimes when a child has to say to his mom and dad god's word says we ought not do that that too is already the beginning of a certain kind of church discipline when a husband approaches his wife or a wife approaches her husband and in a respectful manner and loving manner speaks a rebuke admonition that's discipline when a teacher has to confront a student when a young person speaks to another young person about sin there is mutual censure taking place Already it should be. We're not anticipating the next step to bring two witnesses. We're not anticipating the next step wanting to bring it to the consistory. No. But day by day, there ought to be such church discipline among us for the good of one another. Beloved, if you know for a fact, I'm not talking about gossip. If you know for a fact that A man and a woman, a girlfriend and a boyfriend are continuing in the sin of sex before marriage. You are not to say as a parent, and you're not to say as a fellow young person, oh, they're going to get married anyways. But you are to confront them. If you know that a member of the church is truly addicted to a substance, in bondage to sin, it's not, well, that's pretty common. But... The beginning of discipline ought to take place in this censure, this rebuke. Jesus commands that, and He breathes His Holy Spirit upon us, even as you hear the word this morning, that you might be equipped with courage and love unto this work. The second question to answer is this, Whom whom does the church discipline? We first ask about the subject of the verb to discipline. Now we ask about the object of discipline. And one description of the person that we as people of God must discipline is, as the catechism puts it, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 18, a a brother, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. We're not going to work in the world. We're not going to the news and finding all the sins of the people of the world around us and trying to address all of them. Though we must be witnesses of what is holy and right, and even rebuke others in the world, the calling of God's Word here is particularly toward one who has the name Christian, and especially one who is in your church, a brother, a sister, one who is continuing or impenitent in sin, who will not, as the Catechism says, renounce their errors and wicked course of life. Discipline is not for sin generally. You'll see, you'll notice plenty of sins and weaknesses in one another. discipline is for impenitence. The one continues in sin. It's not for sin that we judge. It's really bad. And so now, because it's really bad and we know there are so many consequences and even dangers that might come upon a person, we better address it now. He's going to get in a car accident if he continues in that sin, so now we have to address it now. Sin is addressed when you see impenitence, even if we don't yet see how we could harm someone physically. That means, beloved, discipline begins and continues even if that sin is respected, though it ought not be respected, though it's respected by the majority. Even if other people around you say it's not a big deal, don't make a big deal out of it. If you know that someone is continuing in sin, you must address it. 2 Thessalonians 3, which we read, gives us an example of this. In 2 Thessalonians 3, do you know do you know what kind of sin Paul says you must address with discipline? Paul there is not talking about some horrible crime of murder. He's not talking about adultery, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, listen to the kind of sin he says we must address if any would not work Neither should he eat. We hear, Paul says, that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. So he says, address the sin of idleness even. Address the sin of laziness, which often leads to being a busybody and to be divisive in the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul says about one impenitent in that sin, that we must so discipline that man so that if he continues in that sin, which the world may view as minor, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. And most in the church will say, that's radical, that's extreme, don't do such a thing. It's not that big of a sin. And Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 says, it's a command that we engage in in such church discipline, even for so-called minor sins. Rebuking or admonishing Him as a brother, not as an enemy. Does someone lie? Does someone cheat at school? Does someone make an idol of some substance, many substances out there? Continue in gossip or backbite. In his boasts. There is real impenitence, beloved. God says, Jesus says, you must discipline with the rebuke of God's Word. He commands this and He breathes, remember, His Spirit upon us even as we hear His Word that we might be equipped unto this difficult work. Third question, what are the normal steps of this discipline? We've considered them. Matthew 18, first, the sin is addressed privately, brother to brother, sister to sister. And second, with witnesses, one or two. And then if they're still in penitence, it's brought to the church, first to the leaders of the church. This is the normal process of discipline, which we say is unofficial. Not yet formal discipline. And then it is brought to the consistory where the consistory takes up the work, admonishing the same sinner and bringing the formal steps of discipline. Before I get to those formal steps briefly, I said this is the normal, usual process following Matthew 18. We'll get into this more actually tonight. But when there is a public sin, Matthew 18 is not followed. It's brought immediately to the consistory. And when there is a gross sin, which as Article 80 of the church order describes, is infamous before the world, meaning it's a crime that needs to be reported to the authorities... So the authority is taken in hand and not only reported to the authorities then, as it becomes public, it must also be reported immediately to the consistory. Not the normal route of Matthew 18. There are exceptions regarding following Matthew 18, but those are the exceptions. Normally, sin is addressed unofficially through Matthew 18 and then taken to the church. There are three steps of official church discipline. You should know of them. First is silent censure. Second is announcements, public announcements. And third, you have excommunication itself. Silent censure does not mean that the elders are silent toward the impenitent sinner A rather silent censure means that it is not yet made known to the church as a whole publicly. Elders continue to admonish the sinner who is impenitent. With that first step, and bars that sinner from the use of the sacraments. Which indicates the seriousness of this first step already. When the elders take up this formal first step and bar a person from the table, one ought to view it as though the gate or the door of the kingdom of heaven is already swinging upon its hinges to close. So that while it is not yet closed and shut totally, it is already swinging shut The barring from the Lord's table is showing that so long as you remain impenitent, there is a closing of the kingdom to that sinner. Then comes the second step when there are announcements. Three public announcements which are often confused with the three steps of official discipline. But three announcements within the second step. First, with a brother or sister whose name is not mentioned, though the sin is mentioned. And an exhortation to the congregation as a church to pray for that member. And the second announcement, with a name of that impenitent sinner, approved by classes. And then, the third announcement, regarding the date of excommunication of that impenitent sinner. Which leads very quickly after that to the third step of excommunication itself. And you can hear it in my voice. This is a painful work. It is a, it is a difficult work if it must be done. The sinner continues in penitent and sin. For the key of discipline, as it were, turns, and when their excommunication is done, there is a sound, a clicking, a locking, as it were, of the gate of the kingdom. And that sinner is declared outside so long as he or she remains impenitent. And Jesus commands that. And He breathes His Spirit upon His people to do this work as He calls us to. Whosoever sins you remit, or forgive, they are remitted or forgiven. And whosoever sins he retain, do not forgive. They are retained. One clarification. This does not mean that excommunication is declaring the eternal destiny of someone. It is not saying he's reprobate or elect. We don't know that. But it is very rarely saying that so long as the person continues in sin, as an excommunicated individual, he is on the way, she is on the way to hell. Delivered over to Satan, the Scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. To have no company with the church. No fellowship with them. To point to no fellowship with God. Are there exceptions? Common question. Are there exceptions? So that even if a church does excommunicate someone, that that, that person might still be in the kingdom of God. Yes, even a true church can make wrong decisions at times. But don't don't forget that every excommunicated person and one impenitent in sin is going to imagine himself or herself to be the exception. When a true church, even if that church along the way makes mistakes, when a true church judges in accordance with God's Word, That one is outside the kingdom of heaven. Remember, that's not only Jesus commanding that church to do such a thing, but He's breathing upon that church so that by His Spirit, He is moving that church to do this work to indicate what is true, not only regarding the visible church, but what is true of His spiritual kingdom. God, may Jesus Christ empower us into this difficult work. And to the submission, to the submission of Jesus Christ himself as he guides the church in this difficult labor. When Jesus equips the church to discipline in this way, the church will take on a discipline that is of a Christian character, of a Christian character. Catechism calls this discipline, not church discipline, though it's, that's what it is, but Christian discipline. It has to have a Christian character. And three descriptions of a Christian character. First, Christian discipline. A Christian discipline with a Christian character will be in love. command of Christ and His law is love the Lord thy God, as we read this morning. And love thy neighbor as thyself. And love that brother even who is continuing in sin. Love. That's the character. That's exactly why we would do such a thing as discipline, isn't it? Parents, to wear your children, not in anger, not to pay them back. But in love. That's, that's why you would sacrifice of your own ego and your own name and be willing to approach a person, even though you know it's, it's very probable they will attack you in response and, and, and have that awkward conversation to confront them with their sin. It's love. It's true love. True self-sacrificial love. I remember back in my years at Cornerstone and in God's providence, I was preaching on Lord's Day 31 one Sunday when a visitor from a popular church nearby came to our worship service. And afterward, I shook her hand. And she was very flustered with a sermon on Lord's Day 31, particularly about church discipline. And as I shook her hand, she looked at me and she said very quickly, and then quickly exited the building, but Christ calls us to love. And that hit me hard. Indeed. I want to love but the view and the mentality of the world and the church world is that love consists of letting anyone and everyone do what is right in their own eyes and that's not true love what is love the love of Jesus Christ toward us is that he came and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins To forgive us, yes. But to confront us also with our sin. To know the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done. And dying for that sin, you must be confronted. You are a sinner. With these particular sins, even. Is that not what Jesus does for you in his love? And then in confronting you with sin, with your sin and my sin, and He shows us that glorious gospel that He has paid for those sins. That's true love. And Jesus Christ breathed His Spirit upon us, His church, that we may reflect the same love, giving up of ourselves as Jesus did, to address sin that we might proclaim the wondrous gospel of forgiveness and redemption in Jesus Christ alone. True love engages in discipline. And then, regarding love, this character of Christian discipline, remember that the entire process should be characterized by a loving manner. Don't say, don't say, since I'm doing discipline, that's, that is love. Since I'm speaking the truth, speaking the truth is love. No, you can speak the truth. And not do so in a loving manner, revealing an attitude of the heart that is sinful itself. The Catechism speaks of that when it says, brotherly admonish, brotherly admonish. We come to a brother, not with a haughty spirit looking down upon him or her, as though we have no sin. But remember, repenting of our own sin, and even being willing to repent of our own sin in the presence of the brother who we confront. As we confront him with his sin, we speak as a fellow sinner, in love, brotherly, not speaking to exaggerate the greatness of his sin, that's just slander, not engaging in name-calling, while being firm, calling sin, sin, We do so in a gentle manner. In a loving manner. Often, the catechism says, there's the loving manner as well. Often, brotherly admonished. That doesn't mean, the catechism does not mean we keep on admonishing even after the brother has repented. But it means that we do not rush through the steps of Matthew 18. But having confronted the brother or sister, we don't say, no, since I've done it once, I'm going to the next step. But often, frequently, patiently, that's the point, patient with the brother, knowing our own stubborn hearts by nature, we admonish a brother. That's love. Christian discipline takes on the character of true love. Second, Christian discipline takes on the character of correction. Christian discipline is not punitive, but corrective. Significantly, the catechism ends in question and answer 85 this way, about the corrective nature of discipline. Even after excommunication, the Catechism says, when they promise and show real amendment, again received, are again received as members of Christ and His church. Do you see that word when? When there's discipline, there is this when. That's what we're anticipating. When they're corrected, they show. Amendment of life they receive back. Character Christian discipline is for correction, not punishment, not to pay back. Not to bring vengeance. And that better guide our entire attitude so that the sinner who hears our rebuke does not hear the tone of wanting to bring vengeance upon him. But that of a desire for correction, for rescue. And the third characteristic of Christian discipline is that it's spiritual. Loving, it is corrective, and it is spiritual. By the power of the Holy Spirit, and how do you know it's by the power of the Holy Spirit? While well, you use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The state, the civil government, wields the sword, meaning wields force, imprisonment, fines, threats to physical harm, even. That's the state's calling and duty. The church, in her discipline, does not wield the sword, but the sword of the spirit. The Word of God The content of our discipline must always have the Word of God. must always be the Word of God. When members or elders alike bring the correction, it's not with logic and human wisdom, it's with the powerful scriptures. The word of God, Hebrews 4:12, is quick and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Use the Word, beloved. You yourself have not the words. Use the Word. Really, the content of our church discipline, unofficial or official, is the same content as the preaching. Preaching bring the Word. Declare the Gospel of forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. Call the sinner to repent. And promise to the repentant sinner the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And bring the threat or the warning to those who do not repent that there is no forgiveness. And God uses He uses that to turn the heart of the sinner with the Word. It's spiritual. The goal is the salvation of the sinner. To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, Paul says, why that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus for the salvation of the sinner." The goal of discipline is for the preservation of the church. You're glorying, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, it's not good. Don't you know? That a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. To withhold discipline is not only detrimental for one sinner. is detrimental for the entire church like, like yeast or leaven, Paul says. The qualities of yeast and leaven are two. It spreads, spreads through the lump, and it puffs up. When sin is allowed to continue and people know about it without disciplining, without rebuke, then it spreads. It very really will. And it puffs up in pride. As sinners do then claim in their hearts, let us sin, for then grace will abound. But when there is discipline, God works such discipline in the church for the preservation of that church, for the purging of the leaven out of the lump, to bring to repentance and faith, and faith to warn God's people of sin and the consequences of sin, and the congregation is humble rather than puffed up. The goal of discipline is the salvation of sinners, the preservation of the church, and finally for the glory of God's name. Glory of God's name. Think negatively again first when there is no discipline. What does the world say about the church? They blaspheme the name of God. That's what they say. That's what they do. That the holy God would allow sinners to continue in sin and the people do nothing about it. Blasphemy is brought against the name Of God and of Jesus Christ and that on our account when there is no church discipline. There's a loss of the mark of the church. So that one that calls herself church is no real church at all. And vain is the worship of God as God's people continue in sin. While with their lips they praise God. Insincerely. But when there is discipline. The church is purified. They reflect the Holy God. The angels in heaven rejoice, and we with them when sinners repent. And we are driven back to the cross as together the church repents of her sin and finds forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. God is glorified. God is glorified. Thus, the command of Christ is to you. As individuals... And as a church, as elders and as members, do what Christ calls you to, wield the key of the kingdom, the key of church discipline, as unpopular as it is, even if you might be judged unfairly, condemned as those who persecute the prophets, even though people I believe such false accusations we're here not to please men but to serve our God and our Savior in thanks for what He has already done for us. Boldly, courageously, obey Jesus Christ. And then related to that, regarding the command, if you are an object of Christian discipline, and you should be unofficially And then sometimes, officially, by the elders of the church, part of the command is, receive it. Receive it as that for your good. Take it as God's chastising hand, which is, as we sang, a healing ointment to your soul. At confession of faith, you swear you would. You swore you would. I will submit to church government. And in case I become delinquent, to church discipline. At confession of faith, you said that because out of that very faith, you were saying, I want my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to love me. He loved me so much that He would hold me accountable by using His church. I swear, I vow, I will submit. Don't break that vow. Rather, obey the command of Jesus Christ. Receive that discipline. Because remember, it's not only God's command. Christ breathes His Holy Spirit upon His church to bring forth such a rebuke and to bring that discipline. Christ Himself does. And may that same Spirit then move in your heart also to hear it, to hear that Word, to submit to it, and to turn from your sin. Christ Jesus is both our Savior and our Lord. As Savior and Lord, He not only commands, but He empowers us unto church discipline, to engage in it as He calls us to, and to submit to that discipline which comes from Him. So let it be. Amen. Let's pray. O God, our Savior, be merciful to us, forgive us, forgive us for our sins as individuals, be merciful unto us and forgive us for any neglect of our brothers and sisters, and neglect of Christian discipline. Forgive us, O God, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has died for us. And then sanctify us, O God. May Thy Spirit be breathed out with that Word, that powerful Word, that we might be a holy church, humble, faithful, courageous, to take up Thy Word and to do Thy bidding regarding this key of the kingdom also. May thy name be glorified, O God, through us and in us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail dot com. Thank you.